you know, I think a lot of the last few days, just the time right after Christ's resurrection, what must it have been like for the followers of Jesus? I mean, on one hand, they're seeing him, you know, he's appearing, showing up. So there's got to be some kind of crazy excitement, like, wow, this is what it's all about. And we also read in scripture how the Spirit of God began to open up their eyes and their minds so they could be able to understand what was going on. So that even maybe questions that they had, all of a sudden those questions went from um, to, oh, oh, yeah. And after Christ ascended, the followers of Jesus continued to gather. And as I brought up last week, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 began to become kind of a creed for these early disciples. It was something they would say together. So we're going to read together 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. So as it pops up on the screen, I want you to read with me. And as we read these words together, I want you to imagine that this is a creed for us. This is something that reminds us of what we believe in. Okay, so starting with verse 3. Here we go. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Imagine that it's now 20 and 30 years after Christ's ascension. And you keep saying, give that reminder, that hope, that what we live for is so much more. So much more than what this world has Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the disciples some specific instructions. And in Acts 1, we see part of those instructions, and part of that is to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father, that promise being the Holy Spirit. Um, the followers of Jesus, the believers, as they were called, had a specific task, and that task, according to verse 8 in Acts 1, was this, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Greek word witnesses is what we get our word martyr from, and the, that Greek word means someone who sees an event and reports what happened. So these believers are supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth to be witnesses, to tell people about what they saw. They saw Jesus die on the cross, they saw him rise again, and they saw him ascend to heaven. So they go to Jerusalem, and they wait. What do they do while they wait? They pray. Hmm? They pray. 
verse 14 of Acts 1 says, that all these followers of Jesus, these believers, these men and women who hung around with Jesus with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And just so in case you are ever asked what kind of car did the disciples drive, verse 14 of Acts 1 tells you they were all in one accord. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I think it's last, I don't know what John is The verse 15 says there were about 120 that were gathered together. They were waiting, about 120, and they were devoted to prayer. And then what happened? Well, we know what happened. That is a interesting enough. Pentecost that the Jews celebrated, and it was called Harvest Festival. Get that Pentecost Harvest Festival. What happens on Harvest Festival? The Holy Spirit comes on the disciples. Peter goes out and preaches. The people began to talk to all the people around them, and three thousand people repented that day gave their lives to Jesus. Harvest happens on Harvest Festival. It's not a coincidence, people. This is, I mean, as you read from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this is what happens. This is the way God works. This is what, yeah, it's just, it's crazy for me. And this is part of what makes me so sure about my faith, because there's all these pieces, these little bits of information that when they come together, it's just like, you're on Pentecost Sunday, Harvest Festival Day, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. This morning, I want to give us a challenge, and the challenge is for us to pray. Why pray might be your question that we're following up with, uh, and that's a good question. And so I hopefully, in my challenge, I'm going to answer that question, why pray? Now, what I'm not going to do is talk about how to pray or what to pray or, you know, how do you get prayers answered or what happens with prayers. I'm not, not interested in that today. All I'm interested in doing today is giving you a challenge to pray. Why should you Greece reason why we should pray this. Jesus did it. Right? Sometimes we look at Jesus being the Son of God, okay? So he's fully human, fully divine, and we think that Jesus just uh, he didn't need to pray. But we have to remember that while he was on earth, he functioned fully in his human state. And he prayed, not just only to show us how important it was, but he prayed because he needed to talk to his father. Luke 5.16 says this, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Not just on Pentecost. And we don't, we don't hear, we don't know necessarily what he prayed or how he prayed or any of that kind of stuff. What we know and 
what you take away from this today is that Jesus often went to the lonely place to pray. In fact, chapter Luke 6, verse 12 says that one of those days Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. We got somebody praying out loud right now. Preach it. <laughs> oh, Jesus loves the little children, right? Mm. So, one of those days, again, Luke uh, 6 12, Jesus went to the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. What? I mean, this is right when Jesus is about ready to choose the 12 to be the apostles. Got all these people following, and he's going to pick as well. Now, I would think Jesus has got the kind of relationship with his father that he just goes, Okay, Dad, who are the 12? I don't know why, but Jesus spent the night praying before he chose to pray. Why? Makes me wonder. Jesus needs to spend the night praying before he chose the twelve. What about us in our teenage, elderly days, even Or what about if you've got an important business decision to make? What kind of five people where are you? And we're not going to persuade decisions. Another reason we should pray is this. Jesus tells us to pray. Not only did he did it, he tells us. In Luke 10, here's we get run through a bunch of examples here, they're not going to be on the screen. But just Luke 10 too. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. Remember, Pentecost. Harvest festival. Harvest is a big deal in the kingdom of God. The harvest is plentiful. It's there. People are ready to come to know Jesus. They're just waiting for somebody to come and tell them to be witnesses. So pray. Pray that God send out laborers. Luke 11, 19, 13, Jesus says, So to you, ask it will be given to you. And you will find knock and the door will be open to you. That is prayer. Asking, seeking, knocking. You're not going to get if you don't ask. The door's not going to be open if you're not knocking. Pray. That's 544. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. Yep. Pray for those who are persecuting you. Now, here's the qualifier there. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. How does your Father in heaven want you to pray for those who persecute you? Think about that for a moment. Father, oh, I have to pray. Jesus, they will be a 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Yeah, let's pray about temptation. God, what Lord's Prayer. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Pray it. So we pray because Jesus did it. We pray because Jesus tells us to do it. Another reason why we pray is the early We already talked a little bit about the early church waiting for the Holy Spirit coming and they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to four things, one of those things being prayer. They continued to pray. Acts 4, when Peter and John were brought before the Jewish leaders, what was the church doing? They were praying. What did they do when Peter and John were released and came back? They prayed. They praised God and they said, God, give us boldness. And then stretch forth your hand and do signs and wonders. When they chose leaders, they prayed and fasted. When they were seeking direction for where Paul should go next, they prayed and fasted. They prayed and fasted all the time. Acts 13, 2 and 3 says this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, and the work of Messiah. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. As they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. And then they prayed and fasted more. So Jesus did it. Paul tells us to do it. The early church did it. Another reason is that disciples tell us to pray. There are many scriptures where Paul and the others tell us to pray. Here's just a few. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You want to combat worry, anxiety, and all that's just everything that's going on around you. Pray. In every other situation. Pray when it really gets bad. No, pray. In every situation you are facing. James 5, 13 to 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Whether you're in trouble or whether you are happy, pray, pray, sing praises, pray. Ephesians 6, 18, and pray in the Spirit on some occasions with some kinds of prayers and requests. No, on all 
fall. Remember, we got a couple weeks ago. Fall, I think, or fall. Remember, a couple weeks ago, I become all things to all people, that by all means, that might win some here. I pray the Spirit on all occasions with all types of prayers and requests. And just remind me alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. It's all, it's in all. It's not partial, it's all. The reason why we should pray that we are in a spiritual bed. Pray straight forward. Ephesians 6 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We know this first, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now that's this is why we pray. We're in this struggle. We have this battle. The battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against each other. Our battle is really not against any human being that's alive. Every human on this earth is an image bearer. Even if they're not living out that image bearing, even if their back is fully turned against God, they still are an image bearer. That's why when we pray for somebody who is persecuting me, it's not that they can destroy that image of who they really are. So Jesus prayed told us to pray, the early church prayed, the disciples tell us to pray. We're in this spiritual battle. And for me today, there's one more reason why we need to pray. All revival begins with prayer. In any region of revival that results in history of the church and a group of people on their knees. reading from this book called Red Room Bible. And I just want to read a couple paragraphs from this book. One of the most significant reversals in the history of the Christian faith took place in America during the 1780s. Get that. 1780s. Just as the new nation was defining its independent identity contributing to the Constitution. Drunkenness was epidemic. City streets were lawless at night, and the church appeared to be in terminal decline. 1780. In fact, the Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, asserting that the church was too far gone ever to be redeemed. The great philosopher Voltaire concurred, and the author Tom Paine argued that Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. This is 1780. David Orr cataloged the sheer scale of the spiritual malaise as a foundational moment in American history. He writes, the Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. In a typical congregational church, the Reverend Stanley Shepherd of Massachusetts 
in 16 years and not taken one young person into fellowship. The Lutherans were so languishing that they, they um, discussed uniting with Episcopalians who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long he decided he was out of work, so he took up other employment. While bishops were making themselves redundant, the university campuses were equally desperate, offering little hope whatsoever for the future of Christian faith in America. A poll taken at Harvard had discovered not one believer in the whole student body. 1780. They took a poll at Princeton, a much more evangelical place, where they discovered only two believers in the student body, and only five that did not belong to the filthy speech movement of that day. Don't know what that is. Doesn't sound good. Students rioted. They held a mock communion at Williams College, and they put on anti-Christian plays and garments. They burned down the Nassau Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of local Presbyterian church in New Jersey and they burned it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s that they met in secret, like a communist cell, and kept their minutes in code that no one would know. It's hard to believe that America. The nation which adopted the slogan in God and Trust in 1950 is today the great mission sending nation on earth was so godless at the time of its inception that Bibles were being burned and bishops were being made redundant. But then, of course, God intervened in American history to resequence the fledgling nation's DNA. He did it. By mobilizing his people to pray. First in the UK, and then in the United States. A prayer movement that started in Britain through William Perry and the Fuller and John Tucker and other leaders began what the British called the Union of Prayer. Hence, the year after John Wesley died, 1791, the second great awakening began. Great Britain, and then the United States of America. Why did I say we think? Because we think that our country is in such a bad place right now. Yes, it's really tough. And what are we going to do? It's time. It's time to pray. It's time to cry out to our Father in heaven. A couple other quick quotes to wrap up our service today. John Crane Hyde, who is significant to the revivals in India in the 18th writes this, the renewal of the church will depend on the renewal of our prayer life. 
Carl Finney, a revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat. Why did he say that? Because Finney believed that when it came to revival, there was a divine aspect, but there was a human aspect. The human aspect was this, people planting seeds, people preparing the soil through prayer, people watering the seeds prayer, being involved in their community. And then the divine is God growing that seed to a point of harvest, and then the human, with the power of the Spirit, coming and harvesting the crop. So if you think about it, a farmer is not going to get any wheat if they don't prepare the soil. A farmer is not going to get any wheat if they don't plant the seeds. A farmer is not going to get any wheat if they don't make sure there's water for that plant. And the farmer is not going to get any wheat if they don't harvest. So I like Finney's quote. A revival is no more a miracle than a prophecy. Carl Clark says this, clasp the hand of prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, prayer is a subversive activity that involves a more or less open act of defiance against any claim by the current regime. Because we want to see revival. We want to see harvest. And that harvest is not coming until we get on our knees before our Maker and we cry out to the Holy Father to send forth laborers into the Our country, our world was awful. But there's been other periods in the history of the church that have been just as bad, if not worse, and they were transformed because people I've been talking a lot to Malcolm and Seth. But it's time now to ask me a prayer for this topic. I, I don't know what it looks like. I don't have a plan. It's time. It's time. So I want, I want you to know that the elders and staff were talking about this. I'm not, again, I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but whatever it comes like, just know that we, as leaders here, we're going before the Lord and we're asking Him, what does this look like here? So I ask you, Crossroads, would you join us in prayer for your personal life, for our country, for our community, and that you begin to ask us, Stand up, we're going to close in prayer.
Video's almost over. Is it on a playlist? Yeah, it's a playlist. Okay, because there's like 10 seconds. Okay. And then.